0: We're going to continue this morning with our study of the new heavens and of the new earth as John gives it to us in the book of Revelation. And, uh, and I want to remind you of a couple of things at the beginning of the message. First of all, this is not primarily a vision of a new heavens and of a new earth. I mean, he talks about that. He says, hey, I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth. You know, he, he talks about that, but then he shifts his topic to what he really wants to talk about, and that's a new city. He's talking here about the city of God, and it's a city that then takes up its residence in the new heavens and in the new earth. It's a city that then lives in and lives out its eternal existence in the new heavens and in the new earth. It's a city that then inhabits and populates and multiplies and rules and fills the new heavens and in the new earth. And that is, frankly, kind of odd language to apply to a city, isn't it? I mean, we don't talk about that when we talk about a city. We don't talk about cities living in. We don't talk about a city's occupying, inhabiting, multiplying, spreading out, ruling, and filling. We don't talk about a city living in a place. We're talking about where it's located. Fort Lauderdale is located in Florida. Chicago is located in Illinois. L.A. is located in California. And on and on and it goes for every city in the world. We, we speak of where it's located, and yet I'm talking about a city that lives in a city that inhabits and multiplies and populates, a city that rules over, that takes up its residence in the new heaven and in the new earth. Hang on to that. Now, the second thing that I want to remind you is that the new city is not new in the sense that, you know, God obliterates absolutely everything that is, and then from nothing starts over completely and creates this new city. It's new, as we saw last week, in the sense that it's delivered. It's new in the sense that it's redeemed. It's new in the sense that God comes along, and He fixes everything that's broken, and He cleanses everything that's filthy, and He heals everything that's sick and diseased, and He makes beautiful absolutely everything that is ugly, and there again the language is strange. Because we don't talk about a city being redeemed. We don't talk about a city being delivered in that kind of a sense. We talk about people being delivered in that kind of a sense. We talk about people being redeemed. So who, then, is the new city? And that, too, is weird language. But I use it intentionally because one of the things that I really, really want you to see today is that the city is not a what. The city is a who. The city that John sees in this vision and with his poetry... That's what this is with his images that he grabs up and tries to describe to us does not constitute, or is not constituted primarily of buildings and streets and stoplights and movie theaters and restaurants and ballparks and, 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 and all the things that we think about when we think about a city. I used to live in the city of Chicago, okay? I mean, like, right in the heart, right on Michigan Avenue, and occasionally we'd go out of town or I'd have business out of the city and I'd be driving back into the city and you could see the city from, you know... Twenty miles away, it seemed like. A long distance, you can see the city, and there's the Sears Tower, and there's the John Hancock building, and there's the Amoco building, and I mean, I can name all of these different buildings on the horizon, and I would say to myself, I see the city, I'm coming back into the city. That's not what John's doing. It's not what he sees. The city that he's describing here with his poetry is constituted of people constituted of you and of me and of all of the believers in Christ, of all of the people of God throughout all of the generations. He's going to describe you today if you're a believer in Jesus. And this kind of language, by the way, is not unique to John. I mean, think, for example, of Peter, you know, in 1 Peter 2. Listen to what he says. He's talking to believers in Jesus, right? And he's talking about believers in Jesus, and he's going to describe both Jesus and us. And look at the language that he uses. He says in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, as you come to Him, meaning Christ, okay, a literal stone, because that's what Jesus is. He's a literal stone in a building, and you can go by and take your picture in front of Him. No. It's an image. It's poetry. It's poetry. As you come to Him, Christ, a living stone rejected, indeed crucified, by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, and now listen to what He then says to these Christians that He's writing to and to us, because it applies to us as well. He says, you yourselves like literal stones. No, I'm not a cinder block, neither are you. We're not going to be fashioned together into a literal building, some structure, you know. That's not it. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, there it is, are being built up as a literal house. No, as a spiritual house. You see what he's doing? He's saying the people of God, metaphorically speaking, are like a house, like a temple is the image. And who lives in the temple? The Lord lives in the temple, guys. These men are Jews. They understand these things. This is the way they think, and these are the categories that we need if we're going to understand, really, what John is saying. Paul does the same kind of thing. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. He says, "'For we,' and he's talking about himself and the other apostles. He's saying, "'For we,' the apostles, these church planters who have come along and planted this Corinthian church, among many others. He says, "'For we are God's fellow workers. You,' meaning you believers who make up this Corinthian church that we're writing to with this letter, "'are God's field.'" So he grabs an image, and it's the image of a field. He's saying, "'You're God's field.'" He's not saying you're made of dirt and, you know, you got weeds. and I, That's not talking about a literal field. He's trying to help you understand who you are by drawing on the image of a field. You are a field in which God has implanted the seed of His Word, and He waters it over and brings it to life, you see, by the Holy Spirit. And what is the purpose of a field? Every farmer knows the answer to this. It is to bring forth fruit. It is to do that for which it has been made. It is the joy of the field to produce. He's saying, look, that's you. But that's not all that he says. Listen to the next image. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. And then he says, God's, up oh, here it is, building. Is he saying we're a literal building? I think we're clear on that at this point, aren't we? He's clearly not. He's using poetic or metaphorical language to say listen we the people of God form a structure in which God dwells Peter for Peter it's a temple for Paul he uses the word building it's probably also the picture of a temple for John it's a city a city as we see later in this vision that has no temple why because God inhabits the whole place God fills the whole place the lamb is the temple it's poetic language And we saw an example of this last week as we came around this vision. John sees the new city, okay, descending from heaven. And what language does he use? As a bride, he says. Well, who is the bride all over the Bible? It's the people of God. It's the true Israel. It's the church can describe it variously but we're all talking about the same group of people. John says this, Revelation 21 verse 2. He says and I saw the holy city. So now what is he talking about? The holy city. This is what he sees, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a up oh, here it is, bride. Adorned by God made ready for her husband. And then what does John say? And I heard a loud voice from the throne, for this is a day of great rejoicing, and God Himself is rejoicing. And what is He rejoicing about? Streets and buildings and, you know, movie theaters. He's thinking, wow, I mean, if they're impressed with IMAX, they're really going to love this one. And Is that it? You know what He's rejoicing about? You're the building that He inhabits. He's rejoicing over His presence in your midst, He's rejoicing, and he says, behold, the dwelling place. No, it says the tabernacle. That's what it says in the Greek, and that's important. The tabernacle was the place where God dwelled in the midst of His people. He says the tabernacle of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Fundamentally, the city of God is the place where God and man dwell. We're the structure, and He resides in our midst. We're His city, is the idea. And I'm not denying, by the way, by saying these things, that there will be a literal infrastructure to the new heavens and the new earth that we reside within as the new city of God. I think there absolutely will be. I mean, we have physical bodies right now, Okay? And the Bible tells us that we will have physical bodies then. And physical bodies presuppose a physical existence. I mean, we've got to walk around on something. We have to breathe something. We have to drink something. We have to eat something. There is a literal physical realm to our existence today, and there will be to our existence then then as well. Okay? And I'm quite certain that it will be unimaginably greater than the one that we enjoy today. All of the colors that we know in this life come from only three primary colors. Guys, what will be the colors of the new heavens and of the new earth? What will they be? If our sin-stained earth today, groaning as the Scriptures teach us, as it does for its own redemption to be made new into the new earth, can take our breath away at times with its beauty, well, how beautiful will the new heavens and the new earth be? If sinful man, with all of our faculties damaged by sin, can produce music and can produce theater and can produce art that inspires our hearts and moves our souls, what will the music, what will the theater, what will the art of heaven be? It's stunning to imagine it, isn't it? And it's right that we imagine the wonders and the beauties of the world to come, but it's wrong if all we see in this vision is some kind of superstructure and we miss ourselves. John sees you. And with his poetry, he describes you. If you're a believer in Christ. And what we need to be asking of this text is, you know, not how many miles is the city and the walls. and the, What we need to be asking is, what does this say about me? About who I am as a believer in Jesus? And what does it imply then about how I ought to live and, and, and what I ought to do, okay? And the first thing that John tells us, and we saw sort of the first part of this last week, is it tells us who we are. I mean, it defines who the people of God are and who the people of God aren't. And to be honest, we'd kind of wish that he left the second piece of that off. It's a little intimidating, but he starts, first of all, with who we are. He's defining who the new city is, if you will. Revelation 21, verse 6, it says, "'And Jesus said to me,' so John is hearing here the words of Christ, and what does he say? He says, "'It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end,' and then he says, and now he gives the description. Who are the people of God? To the thirsty, he says, "'I will give from the water of life without payment.'" What is that water? It's, it's the wine of his blood. It's, it's, it's the bread of his body that is broken for us. It's, it's the gospel. It's the eternal life and the forgiveness that is found in Christ only. He says, To the thirsty, to those who recognize their thirst and bring their thirst to me, I will give from the spring of the water of life. And this is so cool without payment, it's free for he has paid the price for it entirely. And then he adds, the one who conquers, it means literally the one who overcomes, will have this heritage. What's the heritage? Because this is the definition of the people of God, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What is he saying? Who are the people of God? They're those who bring their thirsty souls to Christ and find satisfaction for them, which alone is found in him, A, and B, who then go on to prove the reality of their faith, how? By overcoming the trials and the difficulties and the temptations and the testings of this life in faith all the way to the end without abandoning Jesus. That's the definition of a person who belongs to Jesus. So that's who's in. And the rest, we'd like to get out our pencil, you know, and get our little eraser working. And everybody would like to erase the next verse, Christian and non-Christian. But let's be careful about it for a minute, because now he goes on to describe who are not God's people. And it's not a very friendly thing. He says in verse 8, but as for the cowardly, you're like, can you just stop? No, i got some more. And the faithless, okay, Jesus, is that? No. And the detestable, okay, okay. okay. And the murderers, good grief, I'm overwhelmed. And the sexually immoral, can we stop there? No, I'm not quite finished. And the sorcerers and the idolaters and and all liars, their portion will be in in the what? Because it's a different kind of water, folks. It's the imagery of water in the lake, oh my, that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He's saying, listen, those who refuse to drink from the waters of of living water, from the waters of life that I offer, will forever drink instead from the waters of death. And that's uncomfortable, and we don't like that, and we'd like to erase that, and like to kind of dance around that, and we don't talk a whole heck of a lot about that. But it's there, and it's not just there. It's in a lot of places. And Jesus, who could have stopped, added that verse, and He added it for a reason. Why did He add it? Well, I can't give you all of the reasons, but I think He added it at least in part, to light a fire under us, literally to say, guys, get up and get in the game, man. This thing called the gospel, this thing called the kingdom of God, all of this stuff, this is a matter of eternal life and death. Tell people, there is water that is free. There is a city that is coming. There is forgiveness and life for the asking, for the taking. And I think he also puts it there to motivate us to worship, because honestly, we can only understand truly the love and the mercies of our God when we see it against the backdrop of this, when we recognize the love and the mercy of God as that which by which we are rescued from this. Because let me tell you who every one of us is, okay, starting with me, apart from a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to read the list. This is going to be cool. You ready? Here we go. Cowardly, faithless, detestable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars deserving of the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We're no smarter than anyone else. We're no better than anyone else. We can't jump up and take credit, read a list of stuff like this, and go, yeah, that's those people. That's us, guys. In our hearts, that's truly who we are apart from the mercies and apart from the grace, apart from the sovereign choice of the Lord, apart from the drink from the streams of living water, that He freely gives. And He is to be worshipped as such. We have been spared from what we deserve, and we're being fashioned into the new city, into the place where God will forever dwell. Having identified the people of God, John then begins to describe us, and it's, it's really awesome. Verse 9, he says, "...then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues." Don't you love stuff like that? You're like, oh, yeah, good grief, whatever. Just, you know, can we get to a part I understand? What is he saying there? I mean, if you're familiar with this book, this is the last angel in a series of seven, okay? He's saying judgment is done. Judgment is now over. Judgment is now in the past. So here comes this last angel, and he comes to John, John says, and he spoke to me saying, come, and I will show you the what? Because it's important. The bride, which is who? Well, it's the people of God. So he's saying to John, come, and I'm going to show you the bride, okay? The wife of the Lamb. I'm going to show you, you know, Tom. I'm going to show you Ryan. I'm going to show you Liz. I'm going to show you Ken. I'm going to show you Jerry over here. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to show you you. Fill in the blank if you're a believer in Jesus. He's going to show you you. But then, and it's a stunning view, he comes to John, and he says, come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me a beautiful woman. Now, he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, why did he do that? Because the two are the same. We are the city. That's the point. He carried me away to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem, having told me that He's going to show me the bride. And what do you see? He says, He showed me the holy city of Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and this is so cool, having the glory of God. That's you. But he's not done yet. He says, It's radiance, meaning the radiance of this city that is made up of all of the people of God, in which you are a part, a living stone, he says. It's radiance, your radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper. It should be translated diamond, frankly, but like a diamond, clear as crystal. What an interesting image. Do you know how diamonds are formed? Do you know how jewels are formed? through great heat and great pressure. Does that speak to you, knowing that now God is making that of you? You know, I've talked to a lot of people over the last couple of years, and it's been a difficult go. And for some, it's been difficult for non-economic reasons, but for a lot, it's been difficult for economic reasons. And let's be honest, when we have economic problems, it spills over into everything else, you know, and what once was maybe a tenuous relationship now becomes an even more tenuous relationship, and on and on and on it goes. And I know that a lot of people here today have scratched their heads at times and maybe even in tears have kind of cried out to the Lord, you know, God, what are you doing here? And I think at least part of the answer to that is he's taking the lump of coal that is you, and through great heat and pressure, he's making a diamond out of you. A diamond who will shine for all of eternity in the radiant glory of the light of God's presence. See, one of the other realities about a jewel is you can't see it in the dark. You could fill this whole room up with jewels and turn out the light, you see nothing. Turn on the lights and it reveals, the light does, all of the beauties of the jewel. Those are the images that John is using to describe those who belong to Christ in this day. He says, "'He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God,' meaning the light of His glorious presence, by which He will reveal finally and definitively in that day all of the beauties that He is working into you right now through great heat and pressure." It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a diamond, clear as crystal. And then he says something that's encouraging as well. He says, it, meaning this city had a great high wall, it represents the inviolable nature of this city. He's saying, listen, there's nothing that can attack this city and prevail. There is nothing that's going to interfere with this city, its operations, its relationship with the Lord. It is utterly secure, is the idea. No more anxieties, no more insecurities, no more barriers, no more issues, no more problems. It's unassailable. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the twelve gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. He says, on the east, you see, it's oriented to the east. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Because as you go back in the pages of the Scripture, and you go back into the days of Moses, and you go back into the wilderness wanderings, and you go back, for example, I think it's in Numbers 2, where God says, hey guys, as we travel around together in the wilderness, you know, not in buildings, no movie theaters, no streets, parks, just tents. That's it. The people is the idea. I want to tell you how I want you to camp around me, We're going to put the tabernacle, which is my presence, right dead center in the middle. And then we're going to go like this. I want three tribes encamped on the east. I want three on the north. I want three on the south. I want three on the west. It's the same image. John knows what he's talking about. And what he's describing fundamentally is the people of God with the Lord God in their midst. And then he says, in the wall of the city... This wall, with the twelve gates bearing the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, had twelve foundations. So he's going to talk about the foundation for this city of God, which is us. And on them were the twelve, tri- or the 12 names, rather, of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And that's kind of strange because, again, you know, I mean, chronologically speaking... The twelve tribes came first, didn't they? As you read through the Bible from Genesis, it's like, okay, get to the Jacob story, and he has the twelve sons, and you know, and then his twelve sons become the twelve tribes, and they're named after them, and then the whole Israel thing, and then you get Jesus, and you know, then you have the apostles that you'd almost expect that the twelve sons of Israel would be the names of the twelve foundations, but they're not. Why? Because all of the promises to Israel find their fulfillment in the Jesus that these twelve apostles preach. And What is the foundation? What is the commonality that unites believers everywhere? It is the gospel of the twelve apostles, guys. That's it. I mean, we may differ on the other stuff, but all true believers believe in Christ, that He is the Messiah and the Son of the living God, the one who offers the living water, the one who provides shelter from lakes of fire and all that, imagery of judgment. You know, if you travel to Israel with us in November, one of the stops on the tour is Caesarea Philippi, and um, I've had the privilege actually of speaking there twice. You know, we kind of divide up the teaching duties as we go from stop to stop, and uh, so I've taken this one twice, and both times I've talked about the same event. It's, it's one of the more famous scenes with one of these foundation stones, Named Peter, Jesus is talking to his disciples in this town, and and he says to them, "Hey guys, you know who do men say that I am?" Because Jesus understands that everybody has an opinion about him, and that's still true today. And so he's saying, "Okay, what do you hear? I mean, what's going on? Who do men say that I am? Who are what? what, What's the scuttlebutt on the street?" And so they start answering his question. Well. All right, some say that you're Elijah, and then we got this group over here, they're kind of a faction, they think you're John the Baptist, which, you know, is odd, but whatever. And then we've got them saying you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. They're they're recognizing as they observe the life of Christ that there are patterns that exist in his life that existed in the lives of these others. And so they're trying to kind of fit him in, you know. But that's not enough, is it? I mean, that's that's not living water faith. Jesus is a great prophet. Faith is not going to get it done. Jesus is a great healer. Faith is not going to get it done. Jesus is a great teacher. Faith is not going to get it done. I mean, all those things are obviously true, but it needs to be more. And so Jesus, out of concern perhaps for His own disciples and wanting to get real clear on this, says to them a question that everybody has to answer at some point. He says, okay, let's set those folks aside for a second. What do you say? who do you say that I am? And and Peter, who's like the hero, he speaks for the group. He jumps in and he answers the question. He gets an A+. Matthew 16, verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And then he says, the Son of the living God. Oh, now that beats the heck out of just a prophet, doesn't it? And Jesus is like, A+, you know, He says he answered him and he said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. It just means son of Jonah. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. No, no, no. Flesh and blood resists that. Flesh and blood wants to say prophet. Because if we say Messiah, Son of God, King of heaven and earth, well, all of a sudden Jesus starts making claims on us, or so we think and we feel threatened by that, completely missing it. We're so worried about this world and what we can gather and claim and what we can do in our little lives and our little agendas, completely forgetting that this is a place that is passing away and ignoring the blessings that are ours here and then forever in the new city, in fact, as the new city of Christ. But anyway... Jesus says, "'Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, my Father who is in heaven has revealed it.'" And then He says this, He says, "'And I tell you, you are Peter.'" In the Greek, the word is petros. It means stone. "'You are a stone,' He says. "'You are a stone,' okay?" And then on this stone, or on this rock, I will build my heavenly city. You're like, no, Tom, that's not what he says. Yeah, it is. It's exactly what he says. Just a different word. I will build my church on this stone. What stone? On this statement that Peter has just made, that Jesus is more than a prophet, more than a healer, more than a teacher, more than a more than a more than a more than anybody, anything, anyone, anytime, anywhere. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the giver of the rivers of living water. That's their message. And what's so cool then, you know, you fast forward to this vision that we've been studying the last couple of weeks in Revelation, and you kind of, I mean, you're coming to the end of this age and the beginning of eternity, and, and you find, you know, that Peter, together with all of the other apostles who preached this same gospel that Peter, in a real nutshell, just gave us are more than just stones, aren't they? I mean, they're foundation stones. Well, that's a little bigger. That's cooler than it sounded just coming out of the mouth of Christ, isn't it? And and we'll see next week. They're not just foundation stones. They are foundation stones that are decorated over with precious jewels. The promises of God are amazing. We read them, and we try to imagine it, and we think, wow, that would be so totally cool. And I think sometimes God is just up in heaven going, oh, man, if you only knew how cool it's really going to be because it's going to be bigger, and it's going to be better than anything you can imagine. But that's not where Jesus ends. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, you're a stone, and on this stone, on this rock, I will build my church. And then he says, and the gates of hell shall not... Prevail against it, which means what? It means that you and I are not supposed to sit by in this life, biding our time, waiting away for the heavenly city to show up, taking all of our gifts, talents, resources, and the whole shooting match, and investing it in the chess game that is this world. We're supposed to live for the next world. We're supposed to live for the next life. It's the image of an army that is assaulting the gates of hell. It's not like the gates of hell are marching on us. We're marching on them, is the idea. It's a call to everyone, everywhere who believes in Jesus to start building the city, man. One living stone at a time. Because the city is not a what, it's a who, it's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this vision and for all that it says about your mercies, about your grace, Lord, about your ability to take what is broken and fix and to make clean that which is otherwise irreparably dirty, Lord, to heal that which is sick and diseased in us and to make beautiful the ugliest mess that we can make through your Son and through your gospel. And God, I pray that you would impress upon us the reality of the city to come, the world to come, the judgment to come, the importance of your gospel, of your mission. God, give us the grace to see that today matters, and then when today is done, that tomorrow matters, and then when tomorrow is done, that the next day matters, and then when that's done, that the next day matters. It matters now and forever. And awaken us. We have the opportunity to build your city, and I pray by your Spirit that you would make us effective builders, that in that day there will be many living stones in heaven, Because we got the message and in your grace carried out the mission. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.